So, as we continue in our series on sinners and saints in the Bible, we're going to carry on a little bit more on this theme of grace that began with Gomer and Hosea, demonstrating the grace of God in his faithfulness to us even when we are unfaithful. And then that theme of grace continued with Naomi and the grace of God by showing us mercy to overcome and heal our regrets. And now what we're going to get is a picture of God's grace in providing the body of Christ as a place of reconciliation and forgiveness, and even more specifically, a place where we can find intercessors who will aid us in forgiveness and reconciliation, that we don't do it alone. When we've done something regrettable, as we heard last week in the account of Naomi, it can be hard to go back. It's hard to face the music. It's hard to face the shame. It's hard to face the recrimination. It's hard to face the consequences. It's hard to own up to what we have done. And it's scary to think what we may have to pay for it. Nobody enjoys going back to that moment when they need to ask forgiveness from somebody who they've harmed. It's like a trip to the dentist. It's probably going to hurt. But in the end, we know that it is good and healthy for us. And when we think about forgiveness and reconciliation, probably most of us think about it kind of like that trip to the dentist. It's a solo effort. We just have to cowboy up and man up and pull ourselves up and grit our teeth and go do it. We have to apologize. We have to ask forgiveness. We have to face whatever consequences we have to face. I have to bear the full weight of this burden myself. But that's not actually how God planned his church to work. Yes, you do need to return. Yes, it it will be difficult. There will be some consequences, but no, you do not have to do it alone. No, it is not only your burden to bear, and no, you are not exempt from receiving mercy. But that is not actually... um, Today we are looking at the former slave Onesimus who stole from his owner. He ran as far away as he could go and ran directly into the Apostle Paul, where his life was changed forever. But he also, like Naomi and like Gomer, who also ran away at various points in their life, had to confront his past and had to confront the consequences of his choices. But he didn't have to do it alone. He had help. So yes, this message is about forgiveness, and it is about the role of both the offended and the offender, and what role they have to play in forgiveness, the one who needs to ask forgiveness and the one who needs to forgive. But I also want us to notice the role of the body of Christ, the role of the church, the role of the intercessor, the role of bystanding brothers and sisters, and the job that we have to do in forgiveness and in reconciliation. So let's just read from Philemon. This is the story of Onesimus, and uh, it's captured in the very short book of Philemon. And uh, it's Paul's very personal letter to a friend of his. And this is how it begins, and I'll just read most of the chapter. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always want to thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. 
Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. This is the reading of God's word. So the epistle or the letter to Philemon was written at the same time that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians or the church in Colossae, and that's where Philemon lives. And so these letters were sent by Paul with Tychicus, who accompanied this man, Onesimus. Um, who we discover through the reading of this, it sort of becomes apparent, was formerly a slave of a man called Philemon who lived in that city. And so the reason that Paul writes the letter is to intercede on behalf of Onesimus, to have Philemon welcome him back, even though he's a runaway slave and also a slave that it seems had even stolen from Philemon as he had left and gone on the run. So you can imagine that Philemon would not be too happy to see Onesimus come back after all these um, probably months at least, as we see how far he ran. Uh, After months of being away, he's not happy to see Onesimus come back. But he comes back with a letter from Philemon's good friend, Paul. And Paul wants to restore the relationship between Onesimus and his former master, Philemon, and renew that relationship. Now, we learn that Philemon had a church in his house, literally an assembly of people that were meeting in his house. And Paul obviously knew Philemon quite well. Paul tells us that he's always praying for Philemon and that he misses the assistance that he had from him. And later on, we learn that he plans on staying as a guest in Philemon's house. And so this is somebody who Paul knows quite well. As soon as he's at a prison, he wants to come and see him. And it's very much worth noting that Paul addresses the letter to Philemon and to his household by name, but then... We don't want to miss this. He also addresses it to the church that assembles in Philemon's house. And so as you read the rest of the letter, it is a very personal letter, obviously. It is really just about this one issue between Philemon and Onesimus, but Paul fully intends this personal situation to be a teaching moment for the whole church. Paul intends that the whole church see how Paul is acting in this very personal matter and that the church then include this as a model of their behavior and as part of their teaching. He's modeling how Christians should act with brothers and sisters who need to be reconciled. And basically what he's teaching we can find in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19. 
If you look in 2 Corinthians 5, we see that as a church, we receive a very specific ministry that's named the ministry of reconciliation, and Paul now is actually demonstrating this here in the book of Philemon. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. And so we have a ministry and we have a message of reconciliation. And yes, primarily that's in terms of the gospel message to the world, but clearly we can see that reconciling ourselves and the world to God does not exempt us from the ministry of reconciling ourselves to each other. God is reconciling the world to himself, and he's given us that ministry and that word, and we are also to reconcile amongst ourselves. So we here we have Paul interceding on behalf of this slave, and he's interceding for now a fellow brother in Christ and a friend that Philemon should welcome back with love and with forgiveness. And so in verse 10 and 11, Paul begins the explanation of why this should be so with a little bit of a pun, uh, maybe even to lighten the mood a little bit, you know, break the ice with Philemon, who's going to be pretty upset that his former slave is now returned, and he's reading this letter with Onesimus standing right there in front of him. And so Paul actually cracks a bit of a pun here in verse 10 and 11. Uh, He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains, for Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. And um, so he explains that Onesimus has accepted Christ directly from Paul and that he's part of the family, and then he plays on his name. Onesimus literally means profitable or useful. And so he's basically saying uh, the useful one who was useful, useless to you has now become useful to both of us. And uh, again, he's just trying to, by any means necessary, make it easier for Philemon to accept his slave back. In fact, he's been so useful that he's been helping Paul in prison. As we read, uh, he's been helping Paul in ways that he had hoped Philemon could help him. And so very subtly, or maybe not so subtly here, um, Paul is saying that Onesimus was formerly your servant, and in fact, he's never really stopped serving you because he's serving me the way that I would hope that you would have served me if you were here. And so really, if you want to think about it this way, Philemon, Onesimus has continued to serve you even while he thought he wasn't. And so Paul wants Onesimus actually to stay with him. He's served Paul so well in prison that he actually says, I, I don't even want him to depart. But, but Paul realizes that he can't keep Onesimus without getting this this tear or this wound in the church healed and in the family of God healed. And so he is going to send Onesimus back and to face uh, Philemon and to get it sorted out. And there's one thing to note there, even in this, is that reconciliation really requires personal contact and meeting. It's not something you can do over text. It's not something you can do over email or even over the phone. Reconciliation, the kind of reconciliation that needs to happen in the church needs to happen with personal contact. Um, and to just emphasize it, I'll just point out here that, that 
from Rome to Colossae is about 2,000 kilometers, which in that day and age, on foot and on donkey and by boat, is probably a three- to four-week journey. And Paul is basically sending this guy back to deal with this situation face-to-face, even though he's 2,000 kilometers away from the situation. And I'm confident that if Paul wasn't literally in jail at this time, Paul would go there with him as well. Now, we see some things, four things, really, about how Paul works on Philemon and works on the situation uh, to appeal for reconciliation and to be an intermediary, to be an intercessor uh, in this reconciliation and in this forgiveness taking place. Paul wants to intercede. He wants to be an intercessor. The first thing is, is that Paul's appeal for forgiveness and for reconciliation is based on love. And this is a critical point of his intercession. In dealing with a situation where two brothers need to be reconciled, Paul is explicitly not forcing the, rec- not forcing the reconciliation. In verse 8 and 9, he says that he's not using his authority to force reconciliation, but he's appealing based on love. And actually, in the opening of this letter, it's interesting that Paul never uh, refers to himself as the Apostle Paul. Quite often when he's opening up any of his other epistles, he says, Paul, an apostle in Christ Jesus. This is a personal letter, and he simply introduces himself as actually a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he doesn't refer to his apostleship. And so that's sort of a subtle way that he's not exerting his authority. But then he says it explicitly in verse 8. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. And so what the Holy Spirit has revealed here and and God has preserved for us in this account is a very practical example of how a third party, a brother or a sister in Christ, can come forward and assist in reconciliation. And Paul is essentially going to bat for Onesimus. He's paving the way. He's removing barriers and obstacles, but he's not demanding. He's not demanding. He's not saying that this has to happen out of his authority. He's saying it needs to happen out of a heart of love. But he's also not keeping himself distant from the process as though it's none of his business, as though, oh, you know, there's two sisters or there's two brothers in the church over here or over there, and they need to get things sorted out, and it's really none of my business. No, Paul is immediately, as soon as he finds out about the past of Onesimus, and as soon as he finds out what's going on, he basically steps in and says, this can't be left behind, this can't be swept under the carpet, we can't pretend that this didn't happen, this has to get addressed. He gets involved. He makes it his business because it affects the testimony of the gospel. He makes it his business because it affects the glory of God. It affects the health of the body of Christ. He's investing in the process directly himself because of the unity of the body is so important to him, and the unity of the body should be that important to us. It's not just a problem between Onesimus and Philemon. It's a problem that includes Paul and the church because they're part of the body. So Paul is neither judging nor excusing Philemon or Onesimus. He's not saying that either is right or wrong or should or shouldn't. Whatever has happened in the past has happened in the past. But Paul wants instead to focus on the future out of love. So that's the second thing. Paul puts the focus of reconciliation on future hope and on eternity, not on the present. He says in verse 15, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good or forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. And so when Paul says this, he shifts the focus now of the situation, not to the past of whatever happened before, but to the future and to eternity. The fact that Philemon now has uh, an eternal relationship with Onesimus, that this is an important perspective with regards to reconciliation and forgiveness within the church body. 
Whatever money or property Onesimus may have stolen from Philemon is ultimately just moths and rust, and it will fade away in light of eternity. Whatever offense was given, it's an offense that can be gladly borne because that offense led to his salvation. There's no treasure that Philemon could have lost that is greater than the treasure that he now has as opportunity to gain by forgiving his former slave. There's no debt worth repayment greater than the reward Philemon already has in Christ and as a reward in heaven. There's nothing Philemon can expect from Onesimus that God can't supply to him instead. So whatever it is that uh, Philemon feels he is owed from Onesimus, Paul simply points to the future and says, you have an eternal reward. There's nothing you can possibly expect in payment from this man that supplants that. So by accepting Onesimus, as Paul is encouraging, he's basically saying, how much better to have a brother in Christ than simply a slave or a servant? In reconciliation, how much better to have a brother or a sister in Christ rather than having an enemy in the flesh? And so Paul shifts our our focus, and he shifts the focus of Philemon and Onesimus to the future to be able to aid in reconciliation and say, look, it is a help to your reconciliation. It is a help to forgiveness if we don't forget that our hope is in eternity. Our hope is in the future, and that anything we can expect from the flesh of someone who's offended us has already been repaid to us and there is more payment waiting from God. And then secondly, Paul uh, submits, or sorry, thirdly, Paul submits everything to the sovereignty of God. Paul makes an indirect reference to the sovereignty of Christ early on. Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ, which is an interesting phrase because Paul is literally a prisoner of Rome. And the Romans thought that he was a prisoner of Rome, but Paul never thought of it that way. Paul thought that he was a prisoner of Christ. He implies the sovereignty of God in all suffering, in all of our circumstances, even the things that harm us, even the sins that are against us. He basically says all of that is underlain by and overshadowed by the sovereignty of God. He knows that he's in prison for Christ. And he makes this really apparent, actually, in Philippians 4.22, as he is sending greeters from all of the saints at the end of the letter to Philippi. He says that those include the saints in Caesar's household. So as Paul is in prison, imprisoned by Caesar, Paul is converting members of the emperor's family and converting servants even while he's in jail. So Rome thinks that Paul is a prisoner of Rome. Paul knows he's actually a prisoner of Christ. But then he also makes a direct reference to sovereignty uh, of God in controlling the circumstance of Philemon and Onesimus' lives. Referring to Onesimus' departing for a little while, Paul points out that there may have been divine reasons for Onesimus' actions. So he's basically saying to Philemon, look, you don't know the reasons behind what has happened. You don't know the extent of God's purpose. You don't understand the reach that God has to work all things to good for those who love him. When Onesimus took off and when he stole those things from you to be able to make it to Rome and he ran as far as he did, then you don't realize what God had planned for him to run into me. And if Philemon was like me, and that happened to me, not that I own any slaves, but if something like that, somebody stole from me and it cost me to have somebody run off in that way, then I would be probably saying things like, why did you let that happen, God? And I had this useful servant, and I treated him like one of the family, and I let him have access to the household, and he pays me back by running off and stealing from me on top of all of that. You know, why did you let this happen to me, Lord? Why, do you, why would you turn your a servant against me? 
Or may, maybe we've been offended or hurt by someone and we think, you know, why, God, do these people not see the hurt they're causing me? Why do they act this way? You know, you can't be happy with how they're behaving. Why would you let someone close to me be so hurtful? Like, this is how I would think if I was Philemon uh, in this situation. But Paul's words basically pull us out of the immediate. It pulls us out of the context of the circumstances. And his, his words suggest to Philemon and to us that it's not actually about us. It's not really about him at all. It's actually not something God intended in terms of harm, but ultimately to bring a greater good. And many times, especially in the Old Testament, we read of people who are unhappy with the circumstances God has brought into their lives, thinking it will cause only harm without knowing the greater good in store for them if they are patient and committed to God, or they're not aware of what God is doing in the lives of other people around them, uh, even as they can't understand how God is working. And so Paul basically says, look, I'm in prison for Christ. I'm, you know, I could look at that and say, why is God against me? Why has this happened? But I realize that it's his sovereignty that has me in prison, and I'm reaching Caesar's household through this. Philemon, you could imagine that this is somehow some catastrophe. You don't see how God is working in this, but God is sovereign. Onesimus ran away, and he ran straight into me, and you now have another brother in Christ. And then, finally, the fourth thing, Paul's intercession is willing to pay any price for forgiveness. So we see this critical aspect of reconciliation, and I want to emphasize this today, the idea of true intercession with a price. This is not just arm's-length facilitation. This is literally sharing the burden of both parties, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are wounded, who are hurt, who need forgiveness, who need to forgive, because their reconciliation is so valuable. So as an intercessor, I am going to actively participate in sharing that burden. Look at what Paul says. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. So Paul is exemplifying Christ-like behavior in his intercession for Onesimus, two ways. Basically, by identifying with Onesimus, he says, welcome him as you would welcome me. So Paul puts himself in Onesimus's shoes, and he says, identify me with him, Philemon. Imagine that you're talking to me. Onesimus's identity and my identity are one. I'm identifying with him. And then secondly, paying anything that Onesimus owes. He says, I will pay it back. So to remove any barrier from Philemon being able to reconcile with Onesimus, Paul takes any of the past debt and says, I will cover what I can of it. If there's anything I can do to have you guys reconcile, if there's some price that needs to be paid, if there's something that needs to be said, if there's some action that needs to be taken, let me help and do it. Paul doesn't want any debt or offense from the past to interfere with Philemon's ability to forgive, and so he says, I'll pay it. He's saying, this is so important to me, it's so important to the church, it's so important to the testimony of the gospel that you be reconciled that I will pay whatever needs to be paid. And this is like asking, what can I do to make the situation work between you guys if it's not working out? If a brother or a sister is unreconciled with another and we intercede on their behalf, we need to be asking ourselves, what can we do to make this work? What barriers can we remove to make forgiveness and mercy easier for both? If we make the first move to reconcile, to make payment, and this can be literally payment, but it's usually emotional or relational investment, if we invest in healing and forgiveness, then it leaves the injured party with one less excuse for forgiveness, and it sets an example by making the first move. 
If an outsider to the situation is willing to make the first move and is willing to commit to reconciliation and to pay a debt that's not even attributed to them, then instinctively the parties involved realized if this outside person is willing to pay for something that's actually not their responsibility, then we should be able to work it out. I should be willing to pay or I should be willing to forgive. I need to care as much about this relationship as they do and see the importance of it. And this is the way in which Paul is Christ-like in his ministry of reconciliation. Jesus is not a facilitator. Jesus is not an arbitrator. Jesus intercedes for us to the Father. He sits at the right hand of God, and as we approach the throne of God, he says to God, welcome this one as you would me. And then he goes on to say, Father, if there's anything due, put it to my account. I've paid for this one. You see, so Paul is acting in a very Christ-like way. Jesus made the first move. Jesus identified with us. Jesus said, Dad, welcome this one the way you would welcome me. Just treat him as me. And if he owes anything, I will pay. Jesus interceded and Jesus invested in restoring the relationship between God and ourselves. Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross for the reconciliation that had to happen between us and God. And so Paul simply says, be Christ-like in this. Welcome the one who has offended you as one who has not offended you. In fact, as one who has paid the price for you. Welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. And you know what you owe me. Paul goes on to say, you actually owe me your very self. It was Paul who also led Philemon to Christ. And so he's essentially saying, you don't have any reason not to forgive this person. I will pay whatever price. In fact, I've already put you in my debt just by bringing you to Christ Jesus. And we are all in Jesus' debt. Jesus has already forgiven far more than what anybody else could owe us. This is the kind of intercession that Paul wants to put on display for the church. This is what Paul is doing for Onesimus. This is what he is making an example to the church, why he wants this letter read to the whole assembly and probably became, obviously, it's part of our Bible, it became part of the circular letters that all of the churches copied and circled amongst themselves to read from and learn from this apostle. This is how reconciliation happens. We intercede for our brothers and sisters and we make things right. We pay any cost we have to pay because the church is to be unified and because Christ Jesus has already performed this ministry of reconciliation for us, we perform it for others. If you turn to Ephesians 5, 29 to 30, and then at the same time put a finger in 1 Corinthians 12 as well, In Ephesians it says, After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And then, in Corinthians, it says, As members of his body together, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that if one part of the body suffers, then all the rest of the parts of the body suffer with it? Do we live that out each day, watching out for a suffering member and interceding and paying the price to make the body whole? Do we ask ourselves, what can I do so that you can be reconciled? What can I do so that things are paid up and forgiveness can happen? If you're angry with him or her, or if they've hurt you, put it on my account. When they come to you, uh, treat them as though it's me coming to you. Know that they want to be forgiven. Understand that they have the same heart of mercy and the same heart of compassion that you do. We need to figure out a way that we can get this reconciled because if one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. It's not a private affair when members of the body are unable to reconcile. 
He says, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul uses the same phrase from verse 7. He says, refresh my heart. As Philemon had refreshed the hearts of his church assembly through love, Paul is asking that the same love be refreshing here. He's essentially asking Philemon, I know it's in you. I know that there's that heart of mercy within you. I know that you're able to refresh the hearts of the church. You've done it in the past, and I'm asking for that refreshing love here. I'm willing to pay whatever price it takes to see that happen. So what this means in terms of the ministry of reconciliation is that as we look at this as a church, it's, it's not healthy to avoid interceding when you know there's an offense and you can make things right. It's our duty as brothers and sisters to intercede and to seek unity and to correct things in the body. The Holy Spirit reveals these things to us for a purpose. When the Holy Spirit reveals that there's an offense between another brother or another sister, he didn't reveal that so that you can go and tell 15 other people who aren't involved in it. The Holy Spirit revealed it to you so that you could deal with it. The Holy Spirit uh, revealed it, like in the example of Paul here, he was sensitive to the need for reconciliation and took the initiative to intercede and then was willing to pay whatever price was required to see the relationship healed. He heard about what had happened with Onesimus. He found out about his history and his background. He knew the person that he had offended, Philemon, and he immediately moved to make it right. It's not healthy to be unforgiving or to hold our hurt as a weapon or a trump card over the other person. If there's a valid offense, if you're legitimately hurt and that happens, of course it happens in the church. I mean, sometimes we do ask too much of our body and something gets dislocated or wounded or broken. And it's the same in the church body. Sometimes we ask too much of what we are doing and someone gets hurt or offended. But if that happens, you can't refuse treatment. You can't prefer to be hurt and use your wound as justification for how you feel. You can't say, well, I'm allowed to feel this way towards this person or because of that, because they hurt me. And as long as I don't forgive them, then I'm allowed to be angry or sulk or talk to other people about that person. It's not healthy in the body of Christ for us to hold on to these things because we are a body, and if one part suffers, we suffer together. It's not healthy to pretend you've not offended somebody if you know that you have. If you have a weird feeling or it's awkward around somebody in the church and you're pretty sure that you crossed a line in your last email or your last conversation, then don't pretend that you didn't. It's the same again as with our physical body. If we push a part of our body too far and we pull our back out or we twist our knee, we can't pretend that that offense didn't happen. I mean, we can pretend, but we just end up wounding ourselves even more. We have to give that part of our body the attention that it needs to be healed. We have to make sure that we take care of the body. So it's not healthy to pretend we haven't offended somebody if we haven't. Onesimus ran to Rome. He was 2,000 kilometers away. He tried to get as far away as he possibly could. And while he was in Rome, close to a million people, he somehow, somehow manages to run into Paul. And Paul brings him into the family and says, you know what, in our family, we don't ignore these things. We go back and we take care of them because it really affects everybody. It's not healthy to think that it doesn't affect the whole church. You may be able to think that your resentments or your dysfunctions or offenses are private affairs that don't involve others, but just like a sore knee, they put pressure on all the rest of the body when we try and walk. Don't miss the fact that in the midst of prison, in the midst of a far larger missionary journey, in the midst of writing letters that addressed whole city churches, the Apostle Paul takes the time to address one guy about one slave. Every relationship in the whole body of Christ is that important. This is the reality of reconciliation and how important the ministry of reconciliation and intercession is. That Paul would take the time to reconcile one runaway slave 
to one friend of his out of the entire church of Asia. It's important that we reconcile. Of course, asking forgiveness and forgiving is important. But the letter of Philemon is written to show why it's important that we have the ministry of reconciliation and why we, who are bystanders, are not really bystanders. It's our job to intercede and to pay what needs to be paid. Just like the Good Samaritan. He had nothing to do with the offense that was done to the man who was beset by robbers, but he paid the price for the hotel room. He paid the price for the food. He paid the price in the detour on his journey in order to help him because that is what Christ Jesus has done to us. So let's just remember Paul's practical steps to reconciliation through intercession. First of all, he does it in love. Restoration can't be forced. It has to happen when those involved are ready to forgive. And the whole church needs to be ready to encourage and acknowledge that forgiveness when it finally happens and to welcome everyone back into full fellowship in love. The hearts of the saints are refreshed through love. Secondly, eternal perspective. In order to forgive, we need to focus on future eternity, not on the past. And again, the whole church needs to leave the past behind. If forgiveness has happened and restoration is complete, then shame on anyone who drags up the past and makes accusations. If there has not been restoration, then yes, go back. We don't leave anybody behind. We don't sweep anything under the carpet. We go back and we make it right, but we make it right by looking at the future hope of eternity, not by dwelling on the past. Thirdly, sovereignty. Remember God is sovereign in all of these things, even in our hurts and over those people that disappoint us. There is a purpose that God is working out in everybody's life, and he is working all things to good for those who love him. God is even using the dysfunction of the church for his purpose in your life. So remember the sovereignty of God overarches and undergirds everything that happens to us. And then fourthly, costly intercession. The whole body is, is affected. And so the whole body has a responsibility. As the Holy Spirit makes you aware of broken pieces in the body or things that are out of joint, it is not your job to go and talk to 20 other people about it. It is your job, like Paul, to go to those two people and say, how can I lighten the mood? How can I remove the barrier? How can I make it possible for and easier for you to forgive and to be reconciled? Whatever needs to be done, I will pay the price because this is important to the health of the body. This is important to the glory of God. This is important to the witness of the gospel in our community that we be unified and that we be a forgiving and merciful people. So let me help you do that. And then Paul closes off his letters with words that should ring in our hearts. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. That's great. Paul is confident that we will do even more than just this, even more than just what Paul is asking of him. He's expecting that Philemon and the church will exceed his expectations when it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation. Paul expects that the church will go over the top in forgiveness and it will go over the top in mercy and reconciliation with one another. If there is one thing that the church should be known for and that we should excel at in our culture, it is forgiveness because we are a forgiven people. And so in this regard, Paul is confident. He says, I know that you are going to exceed even what I ask. You're going to exceed my expectations than forgiveness. You're not just going to do the bare minimum. You're going to go above and beyond so that everybody stands back and says, wow, I cannot believe the forgiveness and the reconciliation that I see taking place in this community. It's incredible. That is the message that we learn from Onesimus and from Philemon and the example given by Paul. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And this is certainly one of the ways we need to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Let's pray. Father God, it's incredible that you, well, you are a God of forgiveness. 
and you give us teaching on that, principles of forgiveness that we could go to many verses for. You give us parables about forgiveness, the prodigal son returning home, the, the wealthy king who forgives the debt, all of those parables, and then you give us this personal illustration of forgiveness by the Apostle Paul, and it's amazing. You just say, be to others as I have been to you through Jesus Christ. Christ sits at the right hand of God and says, welcome this one that comes as though you welcome me. And he says to the Father, if they owe anything, I've paid it. That's it. That's intercession. That's the example that we have. And so, Lord, when we know that there's trouble, when we know that there's a need for forgiveness, or if we just even know that we need to forgive others, then we need to examine our hearts, and we need to consider eternity, sovereignty, grace in this example. And we need to have that same heart and ministry and message of reconciliation for each other as we have for the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.